But I have never known a Christian who understands God's principles about saving, giving, and debt, and investing, and have applied those principles who have had a poor financial testimony. And if you are not paying your bills on time, you have really lost, in the eyes of many people, your platform to share Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 13 of our study of the book of Romans, and we find in this chapter information on how Christians are to act in relation to governing authorities. Last week, we began a look at the subject of taxes. And as we pick up, Pastor Brogy notes that even when the evil governments of Rome ruled all of the Middle East, Jesus still instructed his disciples to pay their taxes. This is all within the context of our passage from Romans 13:7, which instructs us to render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Render to all what is due him, tax to whom tax is due. And then there's another word for tax in the New Testament. Since it's a different word, our English Bible renders it custom. Custom to whom custom is due. This is the word telos that would refer to a toll or a duty tax or a custom fee paid on imported goods. We would call today maybe an import-export tax. And God says pay even these kinds of taxes without evasion. So a Christian doesn't come into the United States from being overseas with five watches on his wrist. He doesn't have three pearl necklaces that he doesn't declare. No, we are to pay taxes, even these kinds of taxes. People think all the time, well, there's no record of that. They'll never spot it. No, God wants us to be different. And I think it's rather ironic that one of Christ's apostles was an apostle, a tax collector that he saved. It's a reminder of the power of the gospel that God can take even a dishonest tax collector and make him into a wholesome person. So when we think about our debt to government, number one, we're to submit to the government. Number two, we're to support the government. And number three, we are to be respectful of the government. We're to be respectful. Let's keep reading on in the verse. Fear... To whom fear, honor, to whom honor. Now the word here for fear, phobos, in this context carries the idea of respect or courtesy. And so many of your translations render it that way. Respect to whom respect. We are to respect the office. God calls us to do that. We have many in these services today, Marines and Navy personnel. And many of you have had to give a salute to a person that you knew was not a person of moral principle. But you do it anyway. Why? Because you respect the office. That's what Paul is referring to here. And then he adds, render honor to whom honor is due. And I think many times as a pastor, I see that we as born-again Christians are failing in this area, in this command. Let me ask you a question. When you discuss the President of the United States, When you discuss the city councilman or the police officer who just wrote you a ticket, do you speak with them with a sense of derision, with a sense of slurring remarks? Do your children see you complaining more about people in office or praying more for people who are in office? 
And unfortunately, we cheapen the testimony of Jesus Christ, especially when we tell stupid and sick jokes on those who are in authority over us. Now, it doesn't mean that if the president or the principal or the superintendent or your senator or your representative is wrong in a moral decision that you should not speak up. We are to speak up. Like Elijah spoke to Ahab, like John the Baptist spoke to Herod. And I will speak up as long as this government is endorsing the murder of little babies in the womb, as long as they are endorsing what God calls a perversion, homosexual sex, as long as they are endorsing safe sex for our children in the schools, I will speak up. And you are to speak up. We are to be salt that preserves righteousness. We are to be light that dispels darkness. If it is politically correct and morally wrong, we need to speak up. We need to be heard. But we need to do it in a way that is honorable, just like Daniel spoke in an honorable way before King Darius. Listen, I told you last time that the best citizens of this world ought to be believers. We ought to be known for the kind of Christianity that honors the government. And I see a lot of Christians spinning their wheels, and they've been doing it for decades now, pouring all of their free time into trying to change the government. Look, we ought to speak up and we ought to get up and vote. But if you think that's the solution, you're dead wrong. We're running out of people of character and moral principle to vote for. The only way to change the opinion of a person is to change the person. And the only way to change the person is through the preaching of the gospel. It's only the power of the gospel that can change a life, that can make a person a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I told you we are in the practical section of Romans. It's very practical. He's putting the theology and prophecy and doctrine of the first 11 chapters into shoe leather in this section. So we saw in the 12th chapter how we are to practically use our spiritual gifts in serving each other. We saw in that chapter how we are to love without hypocrisy, how we are to love even those who hate us, even our enemies. And now in this 13th chapter, he's speaking about our debt to the government. We're to submit to them, we're to support them, and we are to be respectful of the government. Now he turns a corner when we come in verses 8 through 10, and he speaks about the Christian debt to his neighbor. The Christian debt to his neighbor. And there are three aspects that he wants to underscore in our thinking. Three aspects of our relationship to our neighbor, and the first concerns our debt. We are to pay what is due. We're to pay what is due. Look now, if you will, at verse 8. The apostle writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, there's two commands in this verse, and the first command concerns the Christian in debt. I found out this week that 80% of Americans are using someone else's money. I also was reminded not only that 8 in 10 are using someone else's money, but that the average American household now has $9,000 in credit debt. That's the average. $9,000 in credit debt, and most of them are paying interest that's in the double digits. So we need to ask some important questions here. Number one, when the Bible says here, owe nothing to anyone, does that mean we should never go into debt? Most of us are paying off a house or a business or a car, possibly a student loan or some medical bill. Is that what verse 8 is saying? Some would say that. Some would say you should never, ever, ever borrow. I think the key to understanding this verse is first the word owe. 
If you're interested, if you're a linguist of sorts, it's in Greek what we call a present imperative. In other words, you could translate it, don't keep on owing anything. Well, when do I owe someone anything? When it's due. If your rent is due on the 10th of the month and you've paid it on the 20th, then you haven't paid it by the due day. If your mortgage or your car payment or whatever is due on a certain day and you don't pay it, then you are owing something that you should not owe. If you went into business and you borrowed capital, you don't pay it back, then it is wrong. Listen, I've met Christians. I remember a Christian years ago in this church. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. He had moved, and I bumped into him one day, and I said, what happened? He said, I moved to Savannah. You moved to Savannah. Why'd you move to Savannah? He said, oh, I just couldn't pay my rent. Couldn't pay your rent? Did you owe your landlord? I owed him six months. You going to pay him? No. That's why I'm in Savannah. It's just evil. That's just wrong. That's a poor testimony. Now, Scripture must interpret Scripture. And no one can dogmatically say that all debt is sin. If they say that, they've abused the Scriptures. Let me show you why. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible... God spoke about the subject of debt. Listen to what Moses penned in Deuteronomy 28. He said, Now it shall be, if you, are dilig if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the goyim, the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth. But then in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, the Lord will open for you if you obey his good storehouse, the heavens, to give you rain to your land and in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Listen, God is making a promise to Israel. If they would obey his laws, he would bless them in such a way that they would be lenders and not borrowers. And so if God was against all borrowing, for God to bless the nation to do something that was sinful would be to leave the nation in sin, and God will never, ever, ever do that. And so if some lending is permissible, then you have to equally say then some borrowing is permissible as well. And God gave rules, even in the Old Testament, on when a Jew could borrow from a fellow Jew. In fact, with that said, let me just say, while debt is permissible in the Word of God, it is frequently abused by God's people. It is highly discouraged in the Bible, and in many cases, it's just considered unwise. If you remember, God had a very low view of debt and a very short-term view of debt. Every seven years in Israel was the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all the debts were canceled, all debts. And so if you came to me borrowing money in the fifth or sixth year, I would look at you carefully. Hopefully you'd be a person of integrity because in the seventh year, all the debts are going to be canceled. Now we might ask a question, is there more than one kind of debt? And I think there are, and I think the Bible differentiates, and you need to come on Wednesday night and we'll explore this in more detail. There's what we might call consumer debt. And consumer debt is usually representative of things that depreciate or consumed once they are purchased. Examples might be uh, food that you buy, uh, furniture, appliances, tires, car batteries, repairs, vacations. Now, if God promises to meet our needs, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, it seems very unwise to me to go into credit card debt on these kinds of things. 
By contrast, there's what we might consider long-term debt or what some would call investment debt, and that would apply to items that uh, increase in value or hold their value or are used maybe as tools to produce income or revenue for a family. An example of investment debt for most Americans is if they own a house or some vehicle or tool that is used to produce income for their family. Now, we're on the, while we're on the subject of debt, let me underscore five reasons why God discourages debt in the Bible. You might want to jot these down. Reason number one is debt can lead to slavery. It can lead to slavery. Proverbs says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. When someone borrows from the lender, they enter into a master-slave relationship. Secondly, debt is discouraged in the Bible because it leads to entanglement. The Hebrew word borrow is a word that literally means to entangle or to entwine or to unite with. And God tells Timothy, who is to be an example to the flock, that we are not to become entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Every couple that gets married in this church... It's preceded by six months of counseling. And part of the counseling program is they must work through the financial course. And at the end of working through it, they meet with a financial counselor who will look at their budget so that they would not make unwise decisions. Because many young new couples in the first couple of years of marriage try to acquire what their parents took 20 years to acquire. And they get into deep, deep, deep trouble. For the first 18 months of our marriage, Audrey and I went to a laundromat. Why? Because we couldn't have charged a new washer and dryer? No, not at all. We had excellent credit. My credit score has always been over, at least since I've been keeping it over 800. No, it was not that. We were just committed to living within our means. When we got married, we didn't even own a kitchen table. We had a little ice box, and we put a plywood on it, and we sat on the floor. And we thought we were living high when we went out to a yard sale, and for $5, we bought a card table, and we sat at that. Listen, there was a lot of things we could have owned a lot faster, but I can walk you through my house. There are so many stories behind so many different objects because we saw God provide in His timing and in His way. My dad taught me a very valuable principle, not knowing that it was necessarily a biblical principle, but it was concerning consumer debt, that you do not buy something you do not have the money for. Now, I've used credit cards since I was 18 years old. I'm not against the use of credit cards unless you have no self-discipline. But if you don't have the money in the bank to to back the credit card, don't use it. I never once, never once paid a late payment fee, and I've never once paid one penny of interest to the credit card company. But so many of God's people are entangled They are trapped. They are in bondage because they're doing finances the world's ways, and they are entangled in the affairs of everyday life. And when that happens, there's a loss of energy, there's frustration, there's bondage, there's worry, and your free time thoughts are not on the investment of the kingdom of God, but many times on your debt problems. And Jesus spoke, one, to lost people that these kinds of things, money, could keep people out of the kingdom. Remember in the parable of the sower where he highlights three out of four different soils and three soils as to why people will not receive him as Messiah? He said, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns... This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. 
And then God gives all this instruction in addition to save people. Why? Because as Hebrews 12 says, we're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. I go to bed at night not worried about paying my creditors. And because of that, I'm not only able to tithe, but by the grace of God, I'm able to give far beyond the tithe. Don't ask me how much. It's a secret between God and me but far beyond the tithe to invest in the things that really, truly matter. Let me give you another reason why debt is discouraged in the Bible. Not only does it lead to slavery, not only does it lead lead to entanglement, entanglement, but it, it presumes upon the future. When you go into debt, you have in many ways mortgaged your financial future. You've made a commitment to pay future income that you haven't even earned yet. And it's a law of God. You cannot spend money that you have not yet worked for. It's a law of God. And if you spend money you have not yet worked for, you will either ultimately work for it or someone else will work for it and they'll give you that money or someone will just entirely forgive the debt altogether. But when you go into debt for money you have not yet worked for, you're assuming and presuming on the future that everything will continue just like it is, that you'll have a job next week, that um, you'll get that bonus you're hoping for, that there'll be no major medical bills. And you may find that things don't go as you anticipated. Proverbs warns, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow may bring. God teaches us, that it is okay to plan for the future. In fact, he tells us it is wise to plan for the future. And we're going to be studying this on Wednesday. But it is wrong to presume upon the future. James says, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business to make a profit. Then he says, yeah, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A fourth reason that debt is discouraged in the Bible is it means you're living beyond your God-given means. It means, in essence, you're not content. If God gives you $40,000 to live on and you spend 110% of your income and you spend $44,000, what have you said? You basically said, God, I'm not content what you've entrusted to me. I reject what you have for me. And God tells us we're not to do that. Remember what Jesus said in that parable we studied just a few weeks ago on Wednesday. He said, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth or unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? If you know the parable, he's saying, if you are not faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, worldly riches, then the things that really matter and really count in this life, you're not going to experience it. And so the only way to experience God's best is to live within your means. And if you live beyond your means, it's just wrong. It's sin. And it is, finally, a lack of faith. For instance, when you use a credit card, what are you typically saying? You're saying, I don't need to seek God on this. I just put it on the credit card. And we miss the opportunity to see God's hand. We miss the opportunity to see God provide. And so very often we've replaced prayer and faith and seeking God's face with the world's way. We just put it on the credit card. So when God says here, owe nothing to anyone, 
He's not saying all debt is wrong, but it must be put within the framework of Scripture and all that God says. A pastor friend was preaching in Nashville, Tennessee, and he noticed a man in his congregation under great conviction. And right about the time of the invitation, he got up and he walked out and he looked mad. The pastor who had invited this dental surgeon to his church went to his office the next day and asked the secretary if he could see him. And the dentist came out and he said, cancel my next two appointments. He brought him back into his office, closed the door and locked it. (laughs) He wasn't sure what he was going to do. He said, I want you to tell me more about Jesus Christ. I want you to tell me what it means to be a Christian. And he did and he led the man to Christ. And then pastor, just before he left, he said, you know, I don't really understand what happened last night. The reason I came here today is because you got up during the service, you looked like you were under conviction, like God was dealing with you, and then you turned mad, and you got up and you left. Was it something that I said? He said, oh, no, it wasn't anything you said. It was the choir. He said, it was the choir? Yes, he said, I saw a half dozen people up there singing through those teeth that I repaired who have not paid their bills. And when I heard that, I thought, how often is that the case? There's another one of those born-agains who owe me money. And I've seen Christians rationalize, well, I didn't pay the rent, he didn't fix the plumbing, he did this. And If you owe money and it's not paid on time, it is dishonoring to the Lord. You say, well, pastor, how can I get my finances in order? How can I get out of this debt and financially according to the Word of God? Number one, come on Wednesday nights. Some of you can't come, and I understand that. Some of you ought to be here because you don't really understand the biblical principles, and you're not able to teach your children and your grandchildren. Number two, start tithing. You say, well, God doesn't need my money. No, God owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand world, on the thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains and everything in it, the psalmist said. He doesn't need your money, but you need to give your money. That's why Christ in 16 of the 38 parables spoke on the subject of money. It's one of the tools that God uses to grow us. Now, giving a tithe doesn't mean automatically you're going to be rich or that all your needs will be supplied. Please understand. But let me say this. I've met Christians who have tithed who don't understand God's principles of debt. And they've borrowed money for their personal accounts, for their house, for their business that violated the Word of God. They didn't do it knowingly. They did it unknowingly in ignorance. And they got into trouble. I know Christians who have tithed, who have gotten out of the will of God. And so God has taken them to the woodshed and he's given them a divine spanking by dealing with their finances. But I have never known a Christian who understands God's principles about saving, giving, and debt, and investing, and have applied those principles who have had a poor financial testimony. And if you are not paying your bills on time, you have really lost in the eyes of many people your platform to share Jesus Christ. So he's talking here about the Christian's debt to his neighbor. And first, he is underscoring that we are to pay what is due. Secondly, we are to demonstrate what is best. We're to demonstrate what is best. It is found here in verse 8 as we keep reading, Owe nothing to anyone 
except to love one another. So there's a debt that we are to never finish paying. There's a debt that is to be forever remained outstanding. We are to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. This is a debt you can never pay off. And you're not supposed to pay off. You never reach a point in your life where you say, well, I've loved that person enough and I need to stop. Or I've shown enough kindness to people, I don't need to do it anymore. Now, Paul is making a contrast in this verse between owing and not owing. To put it in contemporary terms, you max out your debt. You never max out your debt and then refuse to pay it, but you max out your love and you always pay it and you keep on paying it and you never stop paying it. That's the thought. Now, I want you to notice here, if you have the New American Standard, right before those two words, his neighbor, look down into your Bible, you see the little word one, right before the words. You see it there? That is a little footnote. And if you go out into the margin of the New American Standard, it gives you a more literal rendering. It's good to have the NASB, which is, I think, the most precise English text that reflects the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic scriptures, the most precise English text that's available to us in our tongue. And it's really helpful, too, because when there is a literal rendering that can shed some more light, though it may be a little awkward in translation, it puts it in the margin. Or if, as in this case, there's a play on words, they'll put the note in the margin. If you go out into the margin, you note that it says that his neighbor should literally read the other. In other words, you could translate the verse, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves the other has fulfilled the law. It's a play on words. Now, in Greek, there are two words that are translated other or another. There's the word alos and the word biblios. I mean, the word alos and the word heteros. So think with me for a second. This is simple. You know what the word heteros means? It means another of the opposite. And it comes directly into English. So when we speak of a heterosexual, we're speaking of different sexes. When we speak of heterodoxy, it's in contrast to orthodoxy, what is true. Heterodoxy is bad doctrine, that which is false. So if I asked you this morning for a a heteros biblios, you could give me any book you wanted, a book on skiing, on auto mechanics, on anything you wanted. It just means another of a different kind. But if I asked you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book exactly like this one. Torn words, torn, underlined words, underlined. That's the word Jesus uses when he said, I will sell you, send you an alos helper, another helper, another one exactly like myself. And that's why he can say a few verses later in John 14, I will come to you. He doesn't use here in the text the word alos. He uses the word heteros. Why? Because he's underscoring a very important principle. He said, I want you to love one another, referring to the brethren, but I also want you to love the other. And so the NASB, to bring it out into English, says, I want you to love his neighbor. That is people who are unlike you. And that's a little harder to do. It's easy to love this spirit-filled Christian, but maybe the Christian who's not walking with God, it's a little more difficult. It's easier to love someone maybe who's saved than someone who's not necessarily saved. It's sometimes harder to love someone with a different personality, someone who doesn't always see things the way you see it, someone with different mannerisms, different social skills, maybe even someone who owes you money and hasn't paid you. And so Paul is saying, and he's underscoring here, that our love is to be non-discriminating. 
We're just to love those who are like us, and we are to love those who are unlike us. The only debt we are called to never pay off is the debt of love we are to show to one another. We're in a study of Romans chapter 13 and a message entitled, The Christian's Debt. This message, along with the rest from our series in Romans, can be heard anytime using the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org. And while you're there, maybe consider an ongoing or one-time donation to support the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Your generous contribution plays a role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we'll conclude our look at the Christian's debt. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.